Welcome to episode 105 of the Jackson Hole Connection, brought to you by Jackson Hole Wine Club. Please visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash TLS to learn more. Hello from Jackson Hole. I'm Stephan Abrams, your host and guide today. Each week I sit with someone connected to Jackson Hole to share their fascinating story about daily life. I feel we can all learn so much from each other, and I intend to search out people and their stories which will teach us all a little about life outside of your everyday circle. Today's guest is David Gessner. He's an author, lecturer, father, husband, and a guy who has a huge passion for the great outdoors. David actually is the author of 11 books, and his most recent book is titled Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. And this book brings modern issues of the environment and politics back to Theodore Roosevelt's era. David explores how nature can be a common ground for people, no matter what your political position is. We learn about David's journey in life and how he came to be where he is today. David will share some of his perspectives on where society is today and how it relates to caring for our environment and what it means to be in the great outdoors and how we can all enjoy a reset and recharge by being in the great outdoors. David, thank you for joining me today here at the Jackson Hole Connection. It's wonderful to meet you via Zoom and have some of your time out of your busy schedule to talk about who you are and some of the books that you've written. Thanks, Stefan. I'm, I'm really excited to, to be here or be kind of there. <laughs> <laughs> we are all someplace. That is your we are all so, Yeah. <laughs> and you were telling me in the pre-show about one of your experiences of, of visiting to Jackson Hole, and it's quite a unique one. Could you start off by sharing that with the audience as far as what that experience of seeing Jackson Hole or the area was? Well, it wasn't feet on the ground. It was... It was feet in the air. Um, I had written the book and I'd done the trip for the book the summer before, but in the summer of 2019, I realized that I might be able to see the West from above like a giant map because I had a connection with EcoFlight, an organization that Bruce Gordon, who's a pilot runs, where he takes environmentalists up to see the land they're trying to save basically. So I, I called ahead and saw, asked if I could hitch a ride with him on one of his flights that was already scheduled. And he happened to be doing one up in the Yak Valley in Montana, and he left from Aspen. So early in the morning, I got on this, you know, six-seat plane with just the two of us. I sat in the back with my journals and notes and maps. He sat in the front. You know, he's, he's done it a thousand times. For me, it was such a startling experience to go north through Colorado and then along into southern Wyoming, and then suddenly we were approaching the Tetons and it was one of the most visceral, vivid experiences of, of, of my life. Just like we came through the clouds and saw these great shards of, it was actually quite snowy still, even though it was June, the, you know, like daggers. And what I was struck by was how casual he was about it. I wanted to go, hey, um, you notice these things over here, <laughs> don't you? And soon after we passed, um, and started to kind of head up toward Yellowstone, he put it on autopilot and started reading his newspaper. And I was just like, okay, well, I guess, I guess he knows what he's doing. But 
for me, it was exciting and dangerous. And, you know, we were lower than they were. So we were kind of coming, skimming in close. And of course, like everybody else who's ever been there, I'd been struck by the sight before, but now to see it up close was, was really thrilling. It, it is thrilling to see those mountains so up close. And from, from that height as well, it is an experience everybody should, should be able to take advantage of at some point in their life. So you have recently come out with your newest book, and it is Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. I want to start off with asking about that term, what you, how you put wilderness in there. And yeah. wilderness, I'm not sure if everybody understands what wilderness means, but when you mentioned Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness, does that have the same meaning as to what wilderness is today? Or, or maybe, you know, not to add on to your question, but what it meant hundreds of years before him, too. Certainly, please. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a really famous quote, in wildness is the preservation of the world by Thoreau. And people often get that confused and think he's saying in wilderness. And I think it's a really interesting distinction between wildness and wilderness. You know, wildness can happen anywhere. It can happen in your backyard. It can happen, you know, uh, it can happen in wilderness, but it doesn't have to happen in wilderness. And it's the experience of wildness that's always been really exciting to me. Now, it just so happens when you're out in the natural world and there aren't many people around, that happens to be a moment where that kind of primal wild feeling tends to take over more often. I have a scene in the book where we're, you know, in one of those wildlife traffic jams in Yellowstone, and we're grumbling along with everybody else about taking an hour to go 100 yards. But I'm remembering that just half a mile from there, I could be in the backcountry, frightened of bears, exhilarated, and this whole different way of being. And as I say, only, you know, 98% of the park is true wilderness still. You know, people are like, oh, this is touristy. This is, this is tame. This is like Disney World. And I'm like, yeah, well, you get out of your car and you, you hike for a couple of miles and then you come back and tell me that. So I think what's remarkable and what was remarkable about that plane ride around the West was how much empty space there is. And by empty, I don't mean empty uh, you know, I mean, empty of human beings. I mean, filled with trees and, um, and, and wilderness. And so uh, it's still exciting to me to, as, as a born Easterner to come West and feel what I consider to, to be still wild places. Though, of course, um, they're less wild than they were in Roosevelt's time and much less wild than they were well before Roosevelt's time. And I love how you, you differentiate between wildness and, and wilderness. Where did your passion start for nature and, and the wild? You know, there's a tradition in nature writing in the work of, say, Wendell Berry and of Thoreau's of marrying a place, saying this, in Wendell Berry's place, it's Kentucky, Thoreau, it's Concord, Massachusetts, saying this is the place that reflects me. Here is where I'm from. This is, this is my lifelong love affair. I've never quite had that. I loved Cape Cod as a, as a kid. It was an escape from my hometown of Worcester. At 30, I moved to Colorado and felt like my, my doors of perception were blown open and fell in love with that. And then I wrote a, a book about 
uh, loving Colorado, but soon after moved back to Cape Cod, wrote a book about Cape Cod saying, I will stay here forever. And that's how I've ended up down in North Carolina teaching at a university because they read the book and asked me. For it. So for me, I call myself a polygamist of place. <laughs> like I don't, I don't love one place. I, I love many places. And I've always kind of had that kind of, I guess it's like a tuning fork almost inside you when you're in, when you're alone in a, in a beautiful place. And as a writer, I feel like that's where a lot of my words come from. So it's interesting. It's like I started out, I tell my students, I'm not a successful nonfiction writer. I'm a failed novelist because I spent my 20s writing these big clunky novels where characters quoted Thoreau to each other and they were awkward. You know, I was learning my craft, but what they did have in them was a lot of place. They had natural description, physical details. And eventually, when my first book came out, I thought of it as a memoir of my dad's death and taking place on Cape Cod. And I was kind of surprised that they called me a nature writer. And then my next book was about Colorado and how regions form us. And once again, the critics called me a nature writer. So I finally took a stand and my third book was called Sick of Nature. Where <laughs> I was just like, don't call me that anymore. All right, I'm done with it. But but eventually I've kind of been worn down and I realized that for whatever reason, when I write, I tend to write about place and nature. And in the Roosevelt book, you know, the Roosevelt book is dealing with a lot of different things. It's a biography, it's a road trip, it's an environmental clarion call, it's all these things. But really it's also, a, it's a love of American places. You know, from Long Island to, I'm gonna to start to sound like Woody Guthrie here, to, to Massachusetts, to the Badlands, to Yellowstone, um, to Yosemite, to the Grand Canyon, and to Bears Ears National Monument. And to me, it was a way of linking those, these, these vivid places that I love together into this kind of web. I'm, I'm interested to get your perspective on, on a thought that I've had recently. So I live in probably one of the most magnificent places on earth. There's many, many magnificent places, but I live in a very unique, magnificent place. And I'm very lucky that I live in a pretty clean place. However, we receive a lot of visitors from around the globe. Right now, this year, it's mainly, it's only U.S. people from the U.S. because nobody from the rest of the world can come visit. And right now, I'm in California with my wife and visiting her family. And I'm either running or riding a bike and and I see the trash. I see the trash that's out there on the side of the road. And and then I reflect back to Jackson when we receive all these visitors and I look at the parking lot of where one of my stores is and I just see the trash that's left in shopping carts. People fill up their cooler and leave trash in their shopping cart. And I'm curious from your perspective with where Teddy Roosevelt was because he he protected so much of the environment. How do we get society to understand we have to take responsibility for our own actions to protect what we cherish and value so much? And when somebody comes to a natural area, say, wow, this place is beautiful, but I'm going to leave my trash just sitting right here. <laughs> yeah. Let me take that in a little bit of a strange direction at first, because I've been thinking a lot about this. Roosevelt was a moralist, you know, um, and an overt moralist who was not afraid of telling you you were wrong. You know, he, he, he was an inspiring speaker, but he was also often a chastising speaker. 
And I bring that up because one of the reasons I went to Roosevelt was to kind of challenge myself. After 10 books about the natural world, I was like, you know, it's time to put up or shut up. It's time to fight for the places you claim to love. And to get to your point, I think of how, for instance, one strange thing about where I live on the beaches of North Carolina, different from where I grew up in beaches in the Northeast, people seem okay with throwing cigarette butts on the beach, which is kind of startling, really, in this day and age. So I, and I'm sure you're like this too, and others are like this, it's a scary thing to go up and say to them, excuse me, that's wrong, could you pick that up? You know, and you tend not to do it. A corollary would be like even masks now, like Wrightsville Beach near us, nobody wears masks. You know, they're, um, and I would feel very uncomfortable going up and saying, could you, you know, could you put your, your mask on? Teddy Roosevelt wouldn't feel uncomfortable with that. He wouldn't feel uncomfortable with the cigarettes. He was this strange combination of thrilling in wildness and wilderness, but also having kind of a, this ridiculous self-confidence uh, and sense of moral right that he wasn't afraid of pushing on other people. Now, luckily, he also had other things like a brilliant mind and a sense of humor um, that counterbalance that. So I think it's a hard thing to do to tell people you are wrong. You know, it's kind of like the society mo societal moment we're in right now, right? They're going to go right to their corner and put their dukes up. So what I try to do is I kind of believe you don't fight for a place unless you love a place. And I try to do what's happened, you know, recreate what's happened to me, which is loving places and getting into places, you naturally want to take responsibility for it. But the, the and, and there's a fairly common trope in nature writing, but I would say also what people forget is how fun and how fulfilling it is to be in a beautiful place, you know, and, and to, to have that feeling, which is, um, I mentioned wildness, but there's also an aspect of love, of biophilia, of loving a place. And when you love something, you tend to treat it with respect. And that might be a roundabout way to get to what you're talking about. But I do think it's the clearest way to, to that. I don't know that there's a way to, I mean, you can police things, but the hope would be people, some people would at least get an inkling that these places are worth protecting and worth caring for. It's frustrating completely. I, I agree with you. Like when I go to beautiful places and see them despoiled, it's frustrating. So looking at that, to protect what you love, the place that you love, do you feel that that's a sign that we don't just love even the place where we are, that to start with loving the place where we are, I mean, what we, uh, the area we call home, it's our neighborhood. Yeah. It's amazing how you go to places. Like when I travel as a writer to do readings, when I used to travel as a writer, when people traveled, you know, I would be in a restaurant and say, what's that river called, you know, down behind your restaurant. And they wouldn't, <laughs> people wouldn't know. And there's another aspect that, to what you're saying too, which is I quote early in the book, a writer who I love, a Colorado writer who's a friend, Reg Sonner, who, who had a great line. He said, we humans aren't elsewhere. We're always thinking of the next thing of the, you know, what, what we're going to do later this afternoon or next month. And our inability to be where we are is extraordinary. And tourism in a way is built on that. You know, it's built on kind of I mean, they literally give you a, your checklist when you go into Yellowstone, right, of your animals you're going to see. So you're, it's like a romantic things to do list. So how do we wedge down into the places where we are? 
And I, and I, you know, to go back to Wendell Berry and Thoreau, they're, the exciting thing about them is they found those places at home. You mentioned your home being a beautiful place, you know, to kind of kind of learning your place, learning everything about it. I think that's the extraordinary thing about, imagine having a president who knows when the swallows come back, you know, a president who notices the trees budding, you know, a president who goes in, in the middle of his presidency and camps out at night for three days with the leading nature writer of the time. I'd like, you know, I don't know that I'd like to, I don't know, I won't go into that. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind going camping with a with a politician and, and talking about what it, what it means. But so I mentioned the budding and the, the movement through the year. A favorite word of mine in recent times has been phenology, which is watching phenomena move through the year and seeing when when things happen. For instance, when I lived on Cape Cod, I would I'm a big fan of ospreys, the hawks that dive down into the water for fish and. My birthday is March 15th, the Ides of March. And invariably they would come back within a couple of days of that. And so once we start getting, you know, getting our, our, ourselves in sync with the year, that's an exciting thing. And that's a fun thing. You know, it's almost as fun as TV. I'm not a major backpacker, but I've been able to have the experience of backpacking. And I was probably more of a power hiker than anything. So instead of carrying 50 pounds on my back for a few days, I would just put 25 pounds on my back and hit 40 miles in a day. <laughs> nice. But the things that you can see and experience out in nature get you to appreciate what what is out there. And I, I think I said to my wife a few times, and I've said to some other people during this pandemic, because things were shut down so much, I felt as though in the town where where I live in Jackson, that I saw more animals in town than I had ever seen in quite some time because there wasn't as much activity. Yeah. Well, you know, my shirt that I'm wearing says rewild your heart. And we definitely had some rewilding going on early in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I wrote a piece for Sierra Magazine about it started with the mountain lions, like kind of strolling through downtown Boulder, my old, my old town in the snow. And the excitement of having be, suddenly being able to see the Himalayas and, you know, suddenly everything kind of came back in terms of, of that wildness. So it was really exciting. And you mentioned um, power hiking. Uh, a thought I had was uh, one theme of the book is moving from the east to west. And mainly the theme is about Roosevelt. But there's a minor kind of echo of that in my own life. I had testicular cancer when I was 30 and I was living in Worcester, Massachusetts, my hometown. And at one point I wrote in my journal, I don't know what's worse, cancer or Worcester. And I got kind of airlifted out of Worcester, metaphorically speaking, when I got into graduate school in Boulder, Colorado. And that moment of going from East to West, of seeing the Rockies, of kind of getting healthy again, which I did after cancer and starting to run more and, and climb more, was you know kind of like a reenactment of an American cliche almost, um, but I thought of it because I always say it's against it's against the law not to be fit in Boulder. They give you you know they give you a ticket if your abs aren't cut. So um, it was a really interesting moment in my life. But in Roosevelt's life, since we haven't talked about the book much, which is fine with me, I've been talking about the book a lot. But in Roosevelt's life, at 24, he loses his wife and mother within a, uh, 
within a single day. And he moves out to the Badlands and throws himself into work. You know, it's a romantic period. He says in the West, it was in the West that the romance of my life began, but it was also fighting depression. You know, he, he was working out. He was in the saddle sometimes for 24 hours. He was throwing himself into the work of the ranch and he was hunting because he was a big hunter going out into wilderness. But part of that had to be kind of an exorcism, you know, exercising the, the pain and depression of what he left behind. But it also changed him. You know, he changed as a person. He probably wouldn't have gotten elected in 1904 if he hadn't had such great Western support. And that's partly kind of he redefined himself as a Westerner. And there's a great moment, which I love, because it combines the intellectual with the physical, primal. His boat, he had a little boat that was stolen by boat thieves who headed down the Little Missouri, the river that his ranch is on. And it was winter, so the river was chock full of ice. And he and his ranch hands didn't have another boat, so they built another boat and they chased the boat thieves in this cold winter river. And he grabbed Anna Karenina, and, um, and when he wasn't chasing the boat thieves, he read Tolstoy. <laughs> you know, so he, he, he was going on all cylinders at all times. And he did capture the boat thieves, and he, not his uh, helpers, walked them to Dickinson, the town, and got them in jail. But so he was such a, you know, it, one thing I write about is his flaws in the book, which I go pretty heavily into, particularly his attitude toward Native Americans. But he's also kind of a contagious character. You know, you read this guy who just does so much, who at one point reads a book a night, right? You know, who says the presidency is fun, who bird watches while he's president, who, you know, um, who every time he's doing these adventures, whether he's going down the Amazon or going to Africa, he's also writing books about it. So I, I say he's like a reality show onto himself. He'll, he'll have the experience, but he'll always be taking notes, you know, and he'll write it up later. So I guess for me, that's what's really inspiring about him is to have the leader of the free world also understand what it's like to be out alone and watch leaves shimmering and feel a world beyond the human world. That's pretty, that's pretty exciting. I don't think we're going to see that again anytime soon, no matter who gets elected. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that we can all benefit so much from being in the natural environment that you that you described and I'm sure that Roosevelt described in his books and and it, it's certainly different now than what it was when he he made those travels but people can still get some sense of what he and other some of the original explorers had the opportunity to feel hear touch yeah. see and whether it's you know, top politicians or just business leaders or, or just people in general, how do we get more people outdoors to appreciate, not necessarily to appreciate, but to have that sense of place and to, to receive a value out of being outdoors? Yeah. Well, you know, the two things he loved, he's got a kind of awkwardly titled book. I think it's a book lover's holiday in the open that he writes later on after he's president. And those two things uh, are surprisingly linked, books and the outdoors. A lot of people who romanticize being outside uh, were hooked into it through pages, through reading. You know, I mean, I, a clear example in the West would be like, 
Edward Abbey and Desert Solitaire, how many people end up going to Utah and exploring those places because they've read the pages of that book. So I think as a writer, generally, you feel pretty impotent. You're like, ah, no one's really listening to me, you know. But I do think it language and words and books, um, you know, it's not going to work on everybody, but ideas are often where these things start. I mean, I think that's what we're working toward in, in the sort of writing that I'm talking about and trying to do, which is inspiring people to see the world in a different way. I mean, another Thoreau line is the life that men praise and call successful is but one kind. You know, we, we see the world most often as we are taught to see the world, as, you know, and success is what we are taught to see it as. And it's like, how do we see the world in a different way? How do we appreciate the miraculousness of the world around us. And I think, um, not to make too big a claim for writers, I think that people who write in this genre are, you know, that's their job is to recreate the feeling that you first had when you were out there and suggest to others, this can be yours. This doesn't cost anything. Well, maybe in a park, it costs something to get into the park, but, you know, hiking into the woods, is, a, is kind of a cheap thrill in a way. <laughs> you, know, you don't have to pay much to uh, have this on a regular basis. I'm lucky enough where I live on Hewlett's Creek here in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is also known as Dawson's Creek. Um, that's where they filmed it. And I can jump in my kayak in my backyard and get out to Barrier Island, Masonboro, in about 40 minutes. And it's an undeveloped island. There are no real, it's not a park, there are no real rules. And I've spent as many as five nights out there. And what I like about that is to circle back to our earlier conversation, it's a wildness that's close to home for me. I never thought I'd be living in North Carolina, but I've started, you know, I've been here 14 years now and I've started to learn this place. And it's pretty exciting to discover your own backyard basically, which I think has been an interesting theme in the pandemic. You know, um, uh, I'm not, looking for a silver lining or anything, but I will say that a lot of the things we're being forced to do during the pandemic, stay closer to home, not fly, not you know, spend and rush around and consumer bill as much, may be good tools for the climate fight ahead, you know, for the, for, for the times ahead. I mean, I'm writing, a, I wrote a book about Teddy Roosevelt, but Thoreau's a pretty relevant character right now, the original social distancer, so. So true. And I, I can certainly say that I have not been a reader of Thoreau, which sounds like I should delve into some you of that. Better get on it. Or yeah. next time I come on, I'm going to scold you. <laughs> I'll be right back with David after this quick message from the show's sponsor. Jackson Hole Wine Club, Jackson's newest and most exciting club. That's right. We have a new club in Jackson Hole, and we accept everyone who's over the age of 21 and happy to pay. What is the Jackson Hole Wine Club? Well, it's a unique experience and opportunity for you to try new and exciting wines each month delivered to your door right here in Jackson Hole. Also with the Jackson Hole Wine Club, we have the Wine of the Week. Just sign up at jacksonholewineclub.com and in your email box, you'll receive a weekly special that'll blow your mind. Check it out at jacksonholewineclub.com. Now, share with us how you talk about Teddy Roosevelt's constant passion for, for learning. 
he was always learning. Yeah. I mean, even after being president of the United States, the highest honor in some regards of the world, especially back in the early 1900s, he was still learning. Yeah. Where did that passion come from and why did he continue it, do you feel? I think it started in part with his family. His father, was a, who died quite young, was a, was a great dad and kind of this larger-than-life character, founder of the American Museum of Natural History, philanthropist. I called him Greatheart. And, and then he just had a hyperkinetic mind from the beginning. And, the, and it's really interesting that the president, the future president, his ambition as a kid was not to be a soldier or a statesman. It was to be a naturalist like his hero, Charles Darwin. And he loved the idea of being kind of an adventuring naturalist. And he studied, he studied birds extensively. His family was wealthy enough where they were lucky enough to take a trip down the Nile when he was 14. And he took all these bird notes. And in a way, his writing started to come out of the bird notes. And then he was just such a almost rapacious reader. Like he would just swallow books. And he kept learning more and, and growing. And he was a you know, they called him a Gatling gun of conversation. He loved to talk. But surprisingly, he was also a really good listener, too. And he could shut up and just stare at you and take it all in. So, you know, he's certainly a flawed character, you know, chauvinistic, imperialistic, would get, you know, they're trying to cancel him. But as I say, he's taken punches before and he's still standing, you know, because he's so complicated, right? But he grows and his sense of empathy grows to the point where he's called a traitor to his class. This guy who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth ends up being the guy taking on the trusts, taking on the railroads, you know, pushing social programs that, as I say, by the last time he runs for president, they would make Bernie blush. They're hmm. so progressive. Hmm. And they lead directly to his, you know, distant cousins. His square deal becomes the New Deal. So it's just bizarre how he changes throughout his, his career. And then he starts to kind of retrench. He dies young, you know, he's only 60. But as World War I approaches, his more mil militaristic, belligerent side starts coming back out a lot. But you know, it's funny because he's known as this warlike character and there were no wars when he was president. You know, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, so he's a contradiction. Well, we as humans are have natural faults and can be we can contradict ourselves naturally. Yeah. Do you do you feel that with a man of such great influence and being as young as he was, do you do you feel that he owned his faults? He acknowledged them and accepted them, but still kind of just move forward with his his agendas and his ideas. Even in that, it was complicated because he also had kind of some pretty serious blinders. I mean, one thing I talk about in the book is he got beyond probably the largest prejudice we have as a species, which is being anthropocentric, not being able to see beyond the human. You know, he, he could, he was able to see the world beyond the human, right? you know, not just animals, but plants and fungi. And um, so he had that going for him. On the other hand, he was able, he, he did put blinders on at times because he was a fighter, you know, and, and when he fought for things, he fought with a vehemence that would have, would even be surprising in today's climate. So there were times he could see his faults and he had a sense of humor about them. And there were deeper faults that maybe he couldn't see. For instance, a classic one would be, if we give him credit for being ahead of his time, for his environmental prescience, 
then we have to fault him for being behind his time, like clinging to kind of manifest destiny, which was already 50 years old when he became president. So it's not like, you know, he, he really did believe in you know, American greatness in a way that um, was kind of bl blinded him at, at, at moments. On the other hand, I say in the book, he had species, he had believed in species humility, that we're just another animal. And that's pretty great. You don't hear that from a lot of presidents, <laughs> you know. Well, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts and taking the time to investigate and, and write about somebody that I think in, in today's world we forget about and the influence that Theodore Roosevelt had for where we are today. Yeah. And we are in interesting times, which will pass. And not to make it, not to be flippant about it, it, it the time, this challenge yeah. will, will pass and life will move on in, in a new way as, as it always has. With what you've learned and what you've written about in, in your life at this point, what do you feel that you could share with the listeners today that we could take away and, and reflect upon? Because I like what you said earlier that Teddy Roosevelt as much as he spoke, he also listened. And, yeah. and, and I really value that. I think listening is just as important for communication as anything. But what can we think about and reflect upon? Yeah. I'll start on a, a larger scale and then get more personal. And on a larger scale, I think we have to remember something that everybody knows wherever, wherever you are on the political spectrum is that the land has always been our common ground. This, is, this started at the beginning of our country after the Civil War, which you've got to say makes our time look relatively peaceful in terms of divisions within the country, was a real boom for public lands because it was a salve. It was a, you know, it was a healing influence after the fractious battling. During Roosevelt's time, and thanks to Roosevelt, we have 230 million more acres of public land. So... I would say, um, and, and here's an example. We talked about New Orleans before we came on the air. Um, I wrote a book called The Tarball Chronicles about the Gulf oil spill, the BP Gulf oil spill. And my hero in that book was a conservative uh, hunting guide named Ryan, who teasingly called Obama my president. Our politics were quite different, but we had this great overlap of uh, caring about the place and the land. And you know, the, the water had been contaminated and the land despoiled. And so I, I really enjoyed how we left the differences beside and came together on that. And I think that's still possible in this country. I mean, to some degree, you see it with the Great American Outdoors Act this, this summer. So that's a hopeful thing to me, flying over the West, almost hitting the Tetons. To me, that was, uh, you know, Wallace Stegner called it the geography of hope. That was a hopeful moment. So that's on the larger scale. On the on the smaller scale, what I take away from Roosevelt, and I, like I say, he's almost contagious, is this passion for the natural world, but also for ideas and this ability to soak in like a sponge ideas from everywhere. And to, to then, and this is as terms of being a leader, um, to take these ideas and put them into a language that inspires people inspires them to do things like you said earlier, you know, taking care of the landscape they find themselves in, not trashing our places. So that's really exciting for me too. And what you've got to remember is Roosevelt did it at a time 
when essentially the issue didn't exist. He not only fought for these lands, he created the arena in which they were fought. So it's, it's pretty inspiring uh, to spend a little time with him. And you're, you, know, you tend to sleep less and drink more coffee. By the way, that's another lesson learned. Roosevelt started drinking coffee from the time he woke up until he, as uh, Edmund Morris puts it, energetically fell asleep you know, late. Uh, and he's the one who, uh, the, the Maxwell House saying, good to the last drop, was a Roosevelt line. Was it really? Yeah. So, as with so many things, throw your hat into the ring, you know, whistle stop tours. He's got all these things that came from him. Huh. Um, I didn't know that he is the person that coined some of those sayings. That's that's awesome to to learn. Um, You've shared so much history, and I love hearing about history and perspective and and, and nature. How do people find your book? Um, What are the different ways? That's a great question these days. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to give there. What's the independent bookstore site right now? It's called Bookshop, obviously Amazon, you know, everywhere pretty much. Um, where they find it less than they used to is bookstores since they tend to not be quite as open as they once were, but it's out in, in stores. It's with a, I, I hope, <laughs> I, I guess the answer I hope is easily. <laughs> well, they find I, it easily. I think what we probably forget about at times is it's so easy to just click and go to Amazon, but going to a local bookstore, even if it's not on the shelf, they'll order it for you. They're, they That's will right. happily order a book. So to shop at your local corner bookstore is, is a great gift to your community. Yeah. And I should mention that, you know, this is kind of my big, my second big Western road trip book. And the first is called All the Wild That Remains, and it follows the paths of Wallace Stegner and Edward Abbey and, the, and their lives, too, kind of weaves those things together. And it's kind of similar kind of model to what I do with Roosevelt. Well, I look forward to reading that book as well. Thank you. Yeah. And do you have a website? So if people wanted to connect with you, they could reach out to you, David? Sure. Um, it's just uh, davidgessner.net. And uh, friend me on Facebook, I'm uh, David Gessner. I'm not much of a tweeter, but, uh, you know, I'm trying in my caveman sort of fashion to start tweeting. So. I, don't, I don't really tweet either. <laughs> but <laughs> We're know, behind the times. We're behind I, the times. I know a lot of people are on that platform, that and Instagram. And for me, I, I respect the different platforms, but at the same time, I, I feel like I'd I can't be on everything because I want to be with my family. And outside, don't forget. And, and outside, <laughs> yeah. And if I'm outside, I, I really want to give them the attention because I have two small boys, six and almost seven, seven and four and a half. And wow. if, if I'm on my phone, then they're not getting the attention that they deserve. And I'm teaching them to not give people attention that they should provide when somebody asks them a question. Well, I was lucky enough to be able to get my daughter out a lot on the water. You know, I mentioned kayaking when she was young and, you know, the phone took over for a while, but now she's 17 and I noticed she's starting to surf and, you know, and I'm, I'm happy to see her doing more, doing things that don't involve a screen every now and then. That's awesome. Good work, David. Good work. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for your, your time this morning. Uh, it's been spectacular getting to know you and visiting with you. And I wish you all the best for 
your next book, whatever that may be. But I'm glad that there's many people who are still out writing books and who take the time to research their, their topics as well. Well, Stefan, thank you. It actually was fun not to talk about the Roosevelt book a little too and to <laughs> amble and ramble into different corners of things. So I appreciate your questions. Indeed. Well, make it a spectacular day, David. Uh, right. We've got a major thunderstorm here, so that's kind of fun. If I were John Muir, I'd climb up a tall tree to watch it, but I'm not. So. Well, uh, we actually have plans to take the kids to the Muir Woods. I believe we're going tomorrow, and I'm excited to take them to see those trees. Well, speaking of getting off the beaten path, there's a little hiking trail off the end of the big circle you do in the Muir Woods. Mm -hmm. And if you go up it a little bit, you can get away from the crowds and it's, you know, you don't go as far as you like and then just turn around, but it's nice. It's the beginning of a trail that goes all the way up Mount Tam. Ooh, thank you for the recommendation. We'll check it out and see if it's open. Some of the trails are closed as well right now. All well, right, well, thank you. My pleasure. It's been great speaking with you and look forward to uh, seeing more come out in your pen. Thank you, David. To learn more about David and his book, Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness, visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash episode number 105. For everybody listening, please make sure you share this episode and get your friends listening to the Jackson Hole Connection. Many thanks to everybody who helps me keep the connection on the air. My wife, Laura, my boys, Lewis and William, my editor and marketing director, Michael Morey, and my musical provider, Luke Taylor. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back here next week at the Jackson Hole Connection.